Well, over the course of this year, we are walking through the Bible. We are exploring God's story together. And as we do that, we are marching through the whole story of God and being able to encounter God's people in a profound kind of new systematic way. And let me share with you what our roadmap is as we go through this journey together. We were talking about God's covenant or God's promises in the book of Genesis. And as we get to the book of Exodus, we're talking about freedom, the liberation of God's people. And as we went last week through the first part of the book of Exodus, we saw everything from the tyranny of their time in slavery all the way up through the plagues and into the moment where they walked on dry land and are headed towards the promised land. The book of Exodus is actually broken into kind of two components, two halves. And the first half and kind of the first 15 chapters are about what are we freed from? And then the second half is what are we freed for? And what are, we, what are we freed from? What we see in the first part of the book of Genesis is we're freed from slavery. We're freed from bondage. We are freed from disease. We are freed from oppressors. We are freed from death itself. <clears throat> Had a wedding and a reception last night. This is bad if this is at the 845 service. And so what happens is we see all of the things that are taken away from God's people, and yet get restored in us being able to be in right relationship with God. But freedom is not just the freedom of restraint. Freedom is the capacity for us to be able to do the good and the true and the beautiful. And so what we see in the second half of the book of Exodus is what we are really made for, what we were made to do. And we're going to see how God restores that. We're going to do that because the signature moment in the first half of the book of Exodus is that Red Sea encounter. The signature moment of the second half of the book of Exodus is what happens up on top of a mountain. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 19. So whether it's the Quest Bible that you have with you or one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, turn to Exodus chapter 19. What happens after the miracle at the Red Sea is that they wander into the wilderness and find themselves at a place called Mount Sinai. I want to show you some pictures of the Mount Sinai region. Here is a picture of what it looks like maybe from the vantage point of the Israelites. This is desert, mountainous area. And then I'll show you another vantage point here of this is what the Sinai wilderness looks like from up top. In the Bible, you will see it used interchangeably, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. It is, don't be confused, it's the same place. Horeb in Hebrew means wasteland. So this is a mountainous area that's in the middle of a wasteland, and it is where God is going to meet his people. Exodus chapter 19, starting in the first verse. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you were to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Well, let's pause right there for a moment. And don't you just love this amazing language of God saying, I carried you on Ingle's wings and brought you to myself. When you think of this imagery of being carried on Ingle's wings, this is, this is imagery of grace. This is not something that they could have done on their own. They are carried, they are sustained, and they are saved in order to be brought into the presence of God, in order that you might be brought near to me, is what God is saying. And so you might be asking the question, what are you doing? Thank you, my child. (laughs) Kirkland's signature, only the very best. You might be wondering, what is God up to in this moment? God is establishing his identity with his people. And after reaffirming that this is all an act of grace, God uses three different kind of noun sets in order to declare who peoples are. So this is who we are. These are our kind of initial marching orders as God's people. We are three different dimensions. And if you have your Bible, I want you to underline these three different sets of words. We are a treasured possession. We are a kingdom of priests. And we are a holy nation. First, let's talk about a treasured possession. As I shared with you just a few moments ago, not that long last night, I'm standing here with two people who are holding each other's hands and looking deeply into one another's eyes and with full emotion making the promise of sharing the rest of their life and their love together. I mean, you could just hear the Cupid and the angels and all of that stuff. It's so wonderful to see someone treasure someone else. And even to be able to be a possession of the other, to freely give themselves to each other. Not a possession of ownership, but a possession of affection. What's interesting is as you read Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20, and this is a chicken or egg kind of moment, Exodus 19 and 20, as we see the tradition unfold, this is wedding covenant language. This is God having a wedding moment with his people. This is God pledging himself and the people pledging themselves to God. And the language of treasured possession is ancient Hebrew love language. This is God sharing his love for his people and the people expressing their love in return for God. I imagine you think of a lot of things when you think of God, like that God is immortal and God is invisible and God is only wise. When was the last time you considered that God considers you his treasured possession? that he loves you with that kind of everlasting love. And the second dimension of what God says is that you are a kingdom of priests. Now, this doesn't seem all of that 
unusual until you just pause and think about it. There were lots of kingdoms in the ancient world, and there were lots of priests in the ancient world. But this combination of words is revolutionary, and no other people, no other nation has ever declared something like this. Because most of the time, kingdoms would have priests. They would not be a kingdom of priests. What is a priest's job? A priest's job is to represent God to his people and to represent people to the Lord. A priest's job was to be an image bearer, reflector, uh, an intercessor between God and the people. And instead of there being like, this is great, you guys are going to have a kingdom, you're going to have a nation, you're going to have a special community, and in that community, you're going to have some priests. No, 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 that's not what God's doing here. God is saying that you are my treasure possession and that you're going to be a kingdom of priests. This is where we see the foundation for that reformed doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. In other words, all of us together are called into the priesthood of this kingdom. All of us are called to be image bearers. All of us are called to reflect God's goodness towards one another, towards the creation that he is redeeming. And then that third dimension of our job description or what you might say we are freed for, is that we are a holy nation, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, when we hear the word holy, we think, we tend to kind of imagine it's better than something else. Let me see if I can put a different spin on holiness for you. Right around the Christmas holidays, my family was coming into town from Texas, my sister and her husband and my mom and my dad. And uh, Christmas, as you might imagine, is a busy season for me. Now, a little while ago for a previous Christmas, my family gave to me the most self-serving gift that they have ever given me. And what I mean by that is that they gave me an ice cream maker and they said, we want you to make us ice cream. I never do anything halfway, and so I buy books and books of ice cream and study the different making of ice cream, and I start to learn how to make really great ice cream. This was one of my COVID behaviors of the last couple of years. I became obsessed with being able to make ice cream really, really well. Should I share with you some of the flavors? This is too, this is just too esoteric a salted ice cream with pure caramel swirls in it. Because you see, ice cream is not meant to be flavored caramel. It's supposed to have bombs of caramel in it. Or a Tupelo honey bourbon chocolate chip, which is proof that God loves you and is your treasured possession. And so I made three different batches, one of which was a strawberry pretzel with fudge swirl in it. And I put them into the freezer. And the kids and my wife, they saw me making the ice cream and they're excited and it's getting close to dinner time. And, and they're like, we're gonna have some of your ice cream. I'm like, oh no, you're not. I made this ice cream for our Christmas dinner. And this was a few days in advance. This ice cream is holy. <laughs> it has been, the word holy means, set apart for a particular use. This is not ordinary ice cream. 
This is special ice cream for a particular use. When God says that his people are going to be a holy nation, what he is saying is that he has set us apart for a particular use to reflect his goodness in the world. You are that swirl of caramel that God has put into the world, the salt and the light for us to preserve and to enhance the world. This is what it means to be holy, to be set apart so that God might use us. All of this is preamble to the building up of the Mount Sinai moment. And in the second half of chapter 19, what we're about to discover is that we are called to prepare ourselves for obedience in relationship to this great God who loves us. I want to show you a picture of the front edifice of the First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. This is the church that I attended when I was in college at Trinity University. And you can just tell that the steps and the architecture on the outside is meant to just point upward and give glory to God. And the inside is a, a beautiful Gothic structure as well. It was in my last year of college, and I was coming into the back of the sanctuary and as I was coming into the back of the sanctuary, I came into my pew, and I didn't realize it at first, but there was somebody behind me who, who was praying, and I, I recognized the person who had been my former college director that I hadn't seen for a couple of years since my sophomore year. And so I turned around, and I'm like, Shannon, it's so good to see you. How are you? And he's praying like this, and he looks up at me, and he's like, hi. And I'm like, dude how are you? How have you been? And he's like, can't you see I'm preparing for worship? And I'm like, wow, you're a Debbie Downer. <laughs> it's a really interesting tension. I entered worship with the anticipation of community, and I entered it with kind of the, the joy of going to a party. Shannon, he entered into worship with his heart in preparation in a different way. Both of us preparing for worship, but both doing it in a different way. The problem with my preparation for worship is sometimes I'm too casual with a holy God. The problem with his preparation for worship is that sometimes his methodology didn't realize that this was a joyful celebration of a weekly gathering of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. All of us are called to prepare to meet God. And one of the challenges that I have for you in this weekly gathering, whether it's online, whether it's in person, that whatever your personality is, whatever your kind of natural state is, to push yourself towards what you need to do to be prepared for an encounter with the one true king. And so this is what happens in the book of Exodus as they start to prepare themselves to meet God. In chapter 19, God tells them how much he loves them and their identity and who it is. In the second part of chapter 19, they prepare themselves for this encounter with God. And then we get to the famous moment of Mount Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments. And this is how the Ten Commandments begin. 
And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord, what? Your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There are a lot of different ways that you can view the Ten Commandments. You can view the Ten Commandments as God putting up guardrails for your life to keep you safe. You can put up the Ten Commandments to say, God is no fun and these are the restrictions because God doesn't want me to have any fun. You can view the Ten Commandments in saying that these are the things that I have to do in order to stay in God's good graces. You might even think primarily of the Ten Commandments as something that's etched in stone, something that is is the rock-solid foundation of all of our judicial system. And there might be dimensions of all of this that have elements of the truth, but I am here to tell you is that if you read the rest of the Ten Commandments and don't anchor it in Exodus 20, chapter chapter 20, verse 1, you will miss out on what the purpose of the Ten Commandments are and that they are a grateful response to the saving work of what God has done. Notice the order of things. God did not give the Ten Commandments and then in their obedience, then save them in the sea. God saves them first, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. It is out of God's grace. It is out of the rescue that God does these things. And so, with great joy, we're going to walk through the Ten Commandments. Aren't you excited? Yes, you are. Because it is the people's grateful response to what God has already done for you. And we are going to read in unison each of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to put them up on the screen. So I'm going to say first commandment, and then you say what the commandment is. Are you ready? First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, we're going to make God our first priority. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be given to you. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image of worship. In other words, we're going to look out for making God in our own image, how we want to make a God that we can tame and we can control. And our tendency is to turn human things into ultimate things, and that is called idolatry. Third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. In other words, this is more than just profanity. This is about you using spiritual language in your misrepresentation of God. This is anybody who uses language of God to cover up an empty or a dark soul. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You were made to rest. You were not made just to work. You are more than what you do for a living. You are not a slave to what you do. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Respect not just your parents, but also respect the people who have become before us in the past. And right now, we are falling into a trap of a blatant disregard of the people who came before us. In our society, there is incredible wisdom in what's happened in the past, and we need to learn from the people who came before us. Let's look at the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. God is on the side of life. And we are not to take life with weapons or with words. And Jesus shows us that even our anger can be a murder of the soul. The seventh commandment. Purity of mind and purity of heart is reserved for the gift of marriage between a man and a woman. It is the best way to live. The eighth commandment. 
Don't take what belongs to doesn't belong to you. Private property is one of the hallmarks of the freedom of what God has given to us and that he has called us in order to be generous. The ninth commandment. Your words ought to have integrity. Jesus says to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Tenth commandment. Envy and jealousy ruin society. And so you and I ought to live and to be the kind of people who can be satisfied, who knows what it means to have enough. These are the Ten Commandments. And they're not just rules. They're a way to live in a joyful response to what God has done for you. There's a guy by the name of A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a a really funny book called The Year of Living Biblically. He uh, was an agnostic Jew who decided that he was going to open up his Old Testament and he was going to try to follow every command that he could find as literally as possible. Now, A.J. admits that he wasn't very religious and that his family was Jewish only the same way that the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. (laughs) And so he even would take little tiny pebbles in his pocket, little tiny little like rocks that you would see at the bottom of an aquarium. And if he saw people what he thought were committing adultery and he would like throw little rocks at them, that was his version of stoning an adulterer. And so let me show you, this is what A.J. Jacob looked like before, and this is what he looked like after. This was his year of living biblically, and it should come as no surprise that even though he had looked for all the commands and followed all 600 plus of them as he could to the letter T, it didn't bring him into a presence of the living God. Why is that? Because he started with the wrong premise. If you don't see this as the grateful response to what God has done for you, then you will misunderstand the commandments and they will warp and manipulate and become really like something that weighs you down more than it does set you free. Don't miss this. The Ten Commandments are what you and I are freed for in this loving relationship with God. There's another way to view God's Word, God's commands, and we find it in the Orthodox Jewish community, and we see it through a festival that is known as Shavuot. Say Shavuot. There are three festivals that come to us from the early part of Jewish history. The first is Passover, of which you might be familiar, and that's where they put the blood of the lamb on the door frames, and God passed over the firstborn of Israel in order that they might be saved. The second Passover is that of Shavuot, which comes to us what we in Christianity refer to as Pentecost. In other words, this happens at 50 days after the Passover celebration happens. And in Shavuot, what we discover is that it's tied to the harvest of the grain, 
which is connected to the story of Ruth, which is what they read at Shavuot. We're going to look at the book of Ruth coming up in a couple of weeks. But it is also the festival by which we celebrate the giving of God's word. In other words, the scroll. Now, there's a tradition of what happens in a Jewish community that also happens as an echo in our community here. When they have the Sabbath ceremony, they always bring in the scroll and someone brings it in. And I don't know if you noticed at the first part of this service and at all of the services that we have in these first two services that somebody walks down the center aisle with the Word of God and comes in and presents it and establishes it here up at the front of the church. At Shavuot, they don't do it that way. You know what they do differently at Shavuot? What they do is that instead of just somebody processing in with it, they come in with it and they actually hand it to somebody in the back. There you go, Elder Terry Moore. And they hold it up and they pass it from person to person. Pass it to somebody behind you or next to you. Pass it around. Pass it around next to you. Keep it going. Keep this going. I didn't give you my Bible. I gave you the big Bible for a reason. This is also a workout at the same time. This is what they do. They pass the scroll around to remind themselves of the gift that is God's word for them because they are going to be his treasured possession, that they are that kingdom of priests, that they are the holy nation, and that a part of that bind, a part of that covenant is actually the word of God. Pass it towards the middle of the aisle so I can have it back. We don't want this, we don't want this. Leon Borchers, I saw you pass it the other direction. (laughs) Thank you, good sir. In other words, they pass this around and they do so. They're not Presbyterian. You need to know, you did this and you were quiet. This is the grateful response of the people of God. This is an incredible gift that was given to us. And so if you've ever seen this in an Orthodox ceremony, they pass it around and they are cheering as they receive the scroll. We don't do that. We're God's frozen chosen. We just hold it and hope that we don't drop it. Don't mess it up. But we would never know that we were God's treasured possession were it not for his word. And God has passed this on to us. What would it be like if we took his word that seriously, that joyfully? What it would be like if we knew that living without lies, without anger, without murder, without envy? What would it be like to have the ability to honor parents and our past? What would it be like to not worship things that we created, but to only worship the living God? What would it be like to put what he says for us first and and for us to be a community that reflected that and demonstrated that? What would it be like? It would be beautiful, wouldn't it? And once a year at Shavuot, they remind as they pass the scroll to one another that that's what this is all about. If you ever want to do interesting Bible studies, one of the questions you ought to ask yourself is, is how does a book begin and how does a book of the Bible end? And when you think about the book of Exodus and you think about what happens in the book of Exodus, you think about the promise of God's people 
as they entered into slavery, that God was going to bring them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and God saves his people, and God pledges his faithfulness, his wedding, his covenant to them. And you might think that the book of Exodus ends with God's people entering into the promised land, but it doesn't. What you'll discover in the rest of the book of Exodus is a lot of fits and starts and complaining in the wilderness and a lot of detailed information about building a tabernacle and that the book of Exodus ends in chapter 40 with God being enthroned in the tabernacle. Let me share with you how the book of Exodus ends. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You and I were saved to worship God. The book of Exodus ends with the promise of Israel, which means may God rule. The book of Exodus ends not with them in the promised land yet, but with God on the throne of their lives. Is God on the throne of your life? Does his glory fill your life in the same way it filled the tabernacle? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful for the freedom that we have, not just freedom from things like bondage and death and decay and disease, but the freedom to live for you. Thank you that thousands of years ago you met your people and you expressed your love for them, a bond and a love that you carry on to us of treasured possessions and kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Set us apart, O oh God, and help us to prepare ourselves for what it means to worship you and to live for you. Thank you for your word, even your commands. Not rules to kill our joy, but the grateful response of what it means to live in right relationship with you. And so God, help us to cherish our Bibles and your promises and your commands. Help us to live in the what if of lives in this way. And Lord, just as you established yourself as king on the throne of God's people, be on the throne of our lives so that we might live fully for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.